tonight is it's it's February 25 here in New York and tonight is a special night for many reasons not least because today was the invasion of Ukraine so I just want us to take a few minutes to uh, remember um, and join us and um, be one with you know our friends in Ukraine who also some years ago um, staged their own people power revolution so tonight um, brings back many, many memories for me. Um, I have a memory of this evening 35 years ago when I was standing outside the massive iron gates of Malacanang Palace. It was day four of the popular uprising against the Marcos regime. I was then a reporter for the Manila Times, a newspaper just reopened after having been shut down when Marcos declared martial law. Thousands of others were at the palace gates too. We had all heard that the dictator had fled the country and we wanted to see for ourselves whether that was true. I remember being swept in a giant wave of people that crashed through the gates of the now abandoned palace. Everywhere were signs of a hurried retreat, documents tossed out of a window, empty jewelry cases, bullets scattered on the floor. On the evening of February 25, 1986, I thought, like so many others, this is the end. The Marcuses had been expunged from our lives forever. How wrong we were. Today, I will talk about memory, about fathers, sons, and daughters, about the Marcus family and mine, and how from one generation to the next, the word is passed. I was a martial law baby. My generation grew up watching the unending spectacle of Ferdinand and Imelda. Remember, this was the 20th century, long before YouTube and Netflix. I would have preferred to watch zombie apocalypse, but that wasn't an option. There were only five TV channels and three newspapers, all owned by Marcus Cronies. We didn't call it fake news then, but it was vintage 1970s propaganda, obvious and crude. I was in first grade when Marcus was first elected president. I studied across the street from Malacanang in a school for girls run by the Sisters of the Holy Ghost. I remember that in the 1960s, the streets around the presidential mansion were busy, filled with traffic and commerce. On Thursdays, hundreds flocked to the church nearby to pray to St. Jude, patron of hopeless causes. I was barely in my teens when martial law was declared. Suddenly the streets were silenced. The palace gates were shuttered. Barbed wire barricades kept people away. The neighborhood, the entire country was hushed. Marcos was still president when I finished high school. He continued to issue decrees from his barricaded palace while I went off to college, graduated and got my first job. My generation had reached adulthood with no memory of any other president. Most of us didn't know that while we were growing up, Thousands of dissenters had been tortured, killed, or jailed. 
that in faraway villages, the army had been let loose to pillage, rape, and murder, that the Marcuses were stealing our money and squirreling it in Swiss banks and Manhattan real estate. We didn't read any of that in the news. Instead, we were entertained. Muhammad Ali beat Joe Frazier in the thriller in Manila. We had beauty pageants, the Bolshoi Ballet, Van Cliburn, international film festivals. We watched the Marcus's party with Brooke Shields and Christina Ford. George Hamilton twirled Imelda to the tune of I Love the Nightlife, while Gina Lola Brigida photographed Ferdinand. Amy was being matched with Prince Charles. The Marcuses behaved like royalty, so we were not surprised when yet at another Marcus inaugural, the choir sang, and he shall reign forever and ever, as the orchestra played Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. Marcus was the Messiah. How did we think we could get rid of him so easily? The truth is that the Marcus myth-making began long before I was born. Not in my generation, nor even my parents' generation. It began with my grandparents' generation. Today, we blame social media disinformation and the textbooks that glorify or normalize Marcus and martial law. But the lies, evasions, elisions, exaggerations, were sowed almost a hundred years ago. If they are difficult to weed out now, it is because they are so deeply rooted. My grandfather, Juan B. Coronel, was born in 1909. He was a school teacher in Santa Cruz, Ilocosur. So was my grandmother, Victorina Pimentel. Marcos's parents, Mariano and Josefa, were more than 10 years older than my Lolo and Lola, and they too were school teachers. They were all among the first generation of Filipinos to be educated in English, in the public school system set up by the American colonial regime. Mariano Marcos eventually left teaching and took up law and went into politics. In 1935, along with his friend and ally, Gregorio Aglipay, he ran in the first ever election of the Philippine Commonwealth. Aglipay ran for president against Manuel Quezon, Marcos as representative of Ilocos Norte in the National Assembly. Both of them lost, Mariano Marcos to his longtime rival, Julio Nalundasan. Not long after the results were announced, Nalundasan's triumphant followers paraded around town in cars and trucks. One of them carried coffins with Aglipay's and Marcos's names on them. The revelers lingered in front of the Marcos home in Batak and shouted, Marcos is dead. For the Marcoses, this was, in the words of the Supreme Court, both provocative and humiliating. We all know what happened next. The following night, Nalundasan was shot and killed. The principal suspect, Ferdinand Marcos, champion shooter of the ROTC rifle and pistol team. He had then just turned 18. A court in Lawag tried and found him guilty, but he made an impassioned plea to be allowed to continue his law studies while in jail. Ferdinand was badass. 
here was the valedictorian of his class acting as his own lawyer and appealing the ruling while studying the bar. He topped the 1939 bar exams, wrote an 830-page brief to the Supreme Court, and argued his case in an all-white sharkskin suit. He was acquitted and saved from the death penalty. By 1940, the wide publicity given the case had made him a legend. If you were Ilocano, like my grandparents, from a part of the country that was hard scrabble poor, its people living on land wedged between mountain and sea, famous for their frugality and work ethic, and who valued family and honor, you would be cheering for him too. Up to now, we don't know who killed Melundasan. We do know that Jose Pilaurel, the Supreme Court Justice who wrote the decision, was Marcos's law professor at UP. It was he who convinced the high court to reverse the conviction by arguing, not that Marcos was innocent, but the country needed brilliant people like him. The justice's son, Jose III, was Marcos's classmate since high school and his Upsilon Sigma Phi fraternity mate. It was he who drove Ferdinand to Malacanang, so President Quezon, no less, could congratulate him on his acquittal. Jose Jr., Justice Laurel's son, would tell me all of this when I interviewed him many years later. Like so many other politicians of that era, he liked to tell the Marcos Melundasan story. It was legend. This was 1984. Confetti was raining down on Ayala Avenue in the protests that followed the assassination of Senator Benigno Aquino. I was a neophyte reporter, and the old man was giving me a lesson on the longevity of political families. What I took from it was something else, their easy embrace of chicanery and political murder. It was a lesson Ferdinand Marcos had learned at age 18. Marcos did not trust historians. History, he wrote in his diary in 1971, should not be left to historians. Make history and then write it. That's what he said, and that's what he did. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Marcos was called, like so many young Filipinos, to defend Bataan. When Bataan fell, he joined the death march and ended up a prisoner of the Japanese in Kapas Tarlac. My grandfather also fought in Bataan, and was also in the death march, but was so sick of malaria, he was left behind in the town of Hermosa. When he recovered, he joined the anti-Japanese resistance, was captured and executed by the Japanese in his hometown in September, 1944. He was only 35 years old. For many years, my Lola kept the documents that attested to her husband's service. This one said, my Lolo, a graduate of the ROTC like Marcos, was sent with his unit to defend the coast of Bataan and surrendered to the Japanese at the foot of Mount Samat. It said he was spying from the guerrillas when he was captured. My father, the eldest son, then not quite 11, was the last in his family to see my Lolo alive. 
that's that's the document the next slide yeah he told us he went to the plaza just before his father was hanged and there my lolo entrusted him with the care of my lola and his two younger siblings unlike marcos my lolo did not get any medals nor were movies made about his war exploits he also didn't have the protection of family and friends in the right places Marcos did. According to US Army intelligence reports in a diary kept by a Japanese war interpreter, Mariana Marcos had welcomed the Japanese to Lawag and had spoken at a pro-Japanese rally in his hometown. It could be that the older Marcos, like many other nationalists, sympathized with the Japanese because they were at war against US colonialists. Whatever the case, some Marcos biographers speculate that Mariano's Japanese connections facilitated his son's release from prison in August 1941. So what did Marcos really do during World War II? Like so many things about the Marcos family, the facts are hard to pin down. Marcos said he cheated death many times during the Battle of Bataan. And afterwards, when he led a guerrilla unit, Ang Mga Maharlika, that fought heroically against the Japanese. In 1964, the American journalist Hartzell Spence published a glowing Marcos biography for every tear of victory that detailed the young Ferdinand's cunning and battle heroics. By the time he was campaigning for president in 1965, Marcos had 28 war medals, making him the most decorated Filipino war hero. But when historian Alfred McCoy trawled US military archives in the 1980s, this is what he found. Marcos, unlike other decorated officers, got most of his medals by lobbying for them when he was already in public office, long after the war was over. In 1963, according to McCoy, then President Diosdado Macapagal, eager to get Congressman Marcos's support, awarded him. 10 medals in a single day. The records also showed that between 1946 and 1948, US Army investigators had dismissed Marcus's claims. Maharlika, they said, never existed. Its exploits were exaggerated, fraudulent, and absurd. In 1950, the US Veterans Administration found that so-called Maharlika members were guilty of atrocities against civilians and were selling contraband to the Japanese. Marcos himself, according to this document from the US National Archives, was arrested by the US Army for soliciting funds under false pretenses, but was released at the intercession of General Manuel Rojas. Maharlika and the World War II medals are at the heart of the Marcos big lie the foundation of the myth that helped elect him to Congress and later made him president. My father, Antonio Coronel, who was 32 at that time, was among the millions who voted for Marcos in 1965. He was Ilocano after all, and the lawyer orphaned by the war. I could understand why Marcos, the dashing hero emerging unscathed and rising like a phoenix from the ashes of the Pacific War, would be so alluring for him and so many others. 
My father was a provinciano who came to Manila to study. Higher education boomed in the post-war years. War reparations and aid revived the economy and provided jobs and education for a rising urban professional class. In 1955, when my father graduated from law school, Marcos was in his second term in Congress. As the representative of Ilocos Norte, he was eloquent and feisty. The landed gentry who dominated the legislature considered him a promising upstart. He impressed those like my father who had no inherited wealth and saw their education and professional skills as their entree to society. In Marcos, they saw a reflection of their own ambitions. When he said he was destined to be president, they cheered him on. When he ran for public office after the war, Marcos used his embellished war record to propagate the myth of his invincibility and inevitability. Iginuhit satadhana, it is writ in the stars. This was the title of the 1965 movie starring matinee idols, Luis Gonzalez and Gloria Romero, released before the election that made Marcos president. We'll return to this inevitability later. Even as he introduced madman type advertising into a Philippine election campaign, Marcos also cultivated the legend that he had an anting anting, a magic amulet. His commissioned biographer Hartzell Spence amplified this tall tale. He wrote that Marcos had inherited the amulet from Aglipay, the anti-Spanish and anti-American revolutionary who was a family friend and political ally. According to the legend, Aglipa himself made the incision to embed the anting anting on Marcus's back before the Battle of Bataan. This gave Ferdinand the power to appear and reappear and restore the dead to life. Marcos made Filipinos believe he was of mythic proportions. Through Aglipay, he was connected to the revolutionary and anti-colonial tradition. At the same time, the fictional Maharlika linked Marcos to the noble datus of the pre-colonial age. He was Malakas of the Filipino creation myth. After martial law, he commissioned nationalist historians to write Tadhana, a multi-volume history that portrayed him and his new society as the culmination of our nation's revolutionary and anti-colonial aspirations. Marcos was the end of history. Until now, followers of the Marcos cult worship him in some villages in Ilocandia. They say he is the incarnation of Christ or of Jose Rizal, and they await his return. Even those who didn't like Marcos imagined him to be more than ordinary a Shakespearean figure, the Hamlet Marcos, agonizing whether to declare martial law or to shoot at the protesters on EDSA in 1986. The Macbeth Marcos, egged on to murder by a power-hungry wife. The Richard III Marcos, who would kill and pillage everything that stood in his way. If Marcos has such a hold on our collective imagination, it is in part because of the lies and half-truths he and his courtiers have told 
over and over again until they were accepted as fact. It is because they have sown so much confusion over the facts so that even now truth seems elusive. The Marcuses have been at this since 1935. Let me say this again. The rewriting of history did not begin after the fall. This myth-making is one reason why today, many believe we are at the cusp of the second coming, the second Marcus coming, the zombie apocalypse. When Marcus declared martial law in 1972, he borrowed from the fascist playbook, point to a threat and hype it so that people believe their safety and security are at stake and only a strong man stands in the way of perdition. As Marcos said in the martial law declaration, only he can save the Republic and, for, and, and form a new society. When he was elected president in 2016, Rodrigo Duterte and Marcos Pan would adopt the same fiery and messianic tone. Both men saw themselves as saviors. They believed the country needed a strong leader and disciplined people. They were willing to jail, torture, and kill to save society from unruly and dangerous elements. Even good citizens must be watched and if necessary, gagged and muzzled. The slogan of the martial law years was, sa ikauunlad ng bayan, disiplina ang kailangan. What drove, what drove people to rebellion or drugs wasn't poverty, injustice, or inequality. It was a lack of discipline. I have one example of what that discipline meant. Those of you who are older than 50 will remember, as I do, the days when Imelda Marcos fenced off large parts of the city to hide Manila's squalor. Even before martial law, many of, the, of Manila's poorest residents had been protesting Marcos' infrastructure and beautification projects for demolishing their homes and destroying their communities. Trinidad Herrera was one of the most effective and eloquent urban poor organizers. She was known internationally and had even met with both Marcos and the World Bank, the funder of government projects. When the Pope visited Tondo in 1970, she spoke on her community's behalf. In April, 1977, just before the Marcoses were slated to host a big UN conference, Herrera went missing. After more than a week of searching, her lawyer, former Senator Soc Rodrigo, found her at a detention cell at the Military Intelligence and Security Group. In a letter he sent to top officials, he described what had been done to her. She was ordered to remove all her clothes until she was completely naked. Then she was made to attach and wind by herself around her left nipple, the end of one of two electrode wires. While electric shock was being applied on her nipple, one of the torturers was holding the other electrode in front of her vagina, uttering threats that if she would not cooperate, he would attach the wire to her vagina. I never met 
screening Herrera, but I have a vague memory of briefly meeting the two lieutenants, Eduardo Matiliano and Prudencia Regis, who she said tortured her. Their lawyer was my father, Antonio Coronel, who often met his clients over breakfast at the family table. Few torturers then or since have been brought to trial, but the case got wide publicity in the US where Congress was debating whether to slash military aid to the Philippines because of human rights violations. The military was forced to bring Matiliano and Regis to a court martial. My father defended them and they were acquitted. Years later, he would also defend Marcos's chief of staff, Fabian Ver, when he was tried for the assassination of Senator Aquino and after the fall of Imelda Marcos, and after the fall, Imelda Marcos, who was being sued for the family's legendary ill-gotten wealth. I had frequent arguments with my father about his choice of clients. His answer always was, even the guilty have the right to a proper defense. He was a criminal lawyer, he reminded me. His job was to defend criminals. He was called in after a crime had been committed. Unlike corporate lawyers, he said cheekily, who are consulted before the crime. He was a charming rascal, my father. He could argue his way out of anything. He teased me about his object, my objections to his clients, but not to the shoes and dresses his lawyer's fees bought me. He also told me that Marcus had asked him to rein in his journalist daughter. He supposedly said something like, I can do that if you can restrain I, me. Being my father's daughter gave me some protection, but did it also give me the courage to do the kind of reporting I did, more courage than I actually had. My father was not a Marcos loyalist. He wasn't blind to the excesses, but like a lot of smart men of his generation, he was drawn to Marcos like moths to a flame. Adrian Cristobal, after whom this lecture is named, was a renowned literary figure before becoming Marcus's speech writer. He brought other writers into the Marcus fold. Blas Ople, ex-socialist, ex-journalist, was among the smartest and most self-aware of all the president's men. He told me not long before the fall, when, he was, when there was fierce infighting in, in the Malacanang state, snake pit, he said, Marcos is like a banyan tree that keeps everything under its shade, so nothing grows underneath. And yet, he too couldn't leave the shade. Smart as they were, these men could not resist the allure of power, the money and privileges that came with it, and the giddiness of basking in the sovereign's glow. Marcus knew how to flatter their egos, his ambition, his virility, charm and wit, his ease with power were irresistible to a lot of men and women too. The appeal of the strong man, of fearsome and unaccountable power is nearly universal. The Yale professor, Jason Stanley, whose parents fled Nazi Europe wrote, fascism is not a new threat, but rather a permanent temptation. 
to fight it, he said, we must resist normalization. Here I quote from his book, How Fascism Works. What normalization does is to transform the morally extraordinary into the ordinary. It makes us able to tolerate what was once intolerable by making it seem as if this is the way things have always been. This bears repeating. What normalization does is to transform the morally extraordinary into the ordinary. It makes us able to tolerate what was once intolerable by making it seem as if this is the way things have always been. Which brings us to Ferdinand Marcus Jr., whose platform, if he has one, is the normalization of Marcos. Like his father in 1935, he is seeking to redeem the family honor and avenge his family's fall. Like his father, he is erasing and rewriting history. He is also propagating the myth of his electoral invincibility and the inevitability of his presidency. Those seeking to explain why another Marcos may become president say it's because we have failed to hold the family to account. We did not demarcosify the country. We sent the Marcoses to exile and then welcomed them back. The LaSalle political scientist Julio Tejanqui faults the political elite who helped restore the Marcoses and their allies to power through elections. He blames the weak party system that, that allowed for the authoritarian contamination of our political life. Sociologist Jail Cornelio of the Ateneo says the Marcoses are masters at selling fantasy and the promise of restoring greatness. Others attribute Junior's stickiness simply to money, machine, and social media. They credit his image mark makers for marketing Junior as the pale, bland, harmless version of his father, acceptable even to the pearl-clutching Cory matrons, just as pinakbet without bagnet is acceptable to vegans. Some put the onus on the opposition for being disunited, underfunded, and weak. Others despair about Marcos' nostalgia and magical thinking, the promise of a shower of Yamashita or Taliana gold at the end of the election. Many, especially among the educated, say it's because uneducated voters cannot see through the fog of disinformation. The hyper-educated point to world historical forces, the erosion of democracy globally, the distrust of liberal elites, and the growing inequality that drives citizens to the autocrats' embrace. All these explanations have the ring of truth, but they also have something in common. They paint an unflattering picture of us and our fellow citizens. It's as if we are all passive receptacles of Marcos propaganda and social media manipulation. We've either been conned or seduced by the Marcoses, or we are pawns of a history not of our own making. By telling you my family story, I may have succumbed to this too. Guilty of the narrative that exonerates the Marcoses by saying, all of us are at fault, we were all complicit, or blameless because history is to blame. The fault is 
in our stars. But resisting normalization means resisting disempowering narratives. It means not being content with the consolation offered by explanation. While agonizing over this lecture, I had a dream that I was desperately trying to write on a piece of ruled paper, but there was no ink coming out of my pen. I was frantic. The harder I tried, the more I failed. Either the pen wouldn't write or the paper would be too damp to write on. You can interpret this dream however you want. To me, it was a nightmare of disempowerment. The sense that wherever I go, I cannot escape history. I cannot flee from Marcos. Even here in New York, I walk down Fifth Avenue past Tiffany's and I think not of Audrey Hepburn having breakfast there, but of Imelda Marcos shutting it down so she could shop undisturbed, undisturbed for her jewelry with our money. Farther south, just beside St. Patrick's Cathedral is Olympia Towers, where Imelda had a seven bedroom condominium on the 43rd floor. Severina Rivera, a film lawyer assigned to hunt for Marcos assets, told me she found paintings of old masters hidden under the beds there. One of them by the French artist Fontaine Latour was auctioned in 1987 for $400,000. At night, if you are in a tall building with a view, Manhattan glitters like a box of jewels, irresistible to Imelda. In the 1980s, she bought four buildings here, including this jewel near, near Central Park with its copper pinnacle that lights up at night. Some years ago, I sat in a Manhattan courtroom to watch the trial of Vilma Bautista, Imelda's personal secretary. In the 1980s, Bautista kept meticulous records of Imelda shopping and the millions of dollars withdrawn from the Philippine National Bank in New York to fund her sprees. By the time I saw her, Bautista was a frail, broken woman who shuffled to the courtroom, always dressed in black. The court said she had taken four impressionist paintings from Imelda's townhouse, sold Monet's water lily pond for $32 million, and lied about it on her taxes. In 2017, when she was 78, she started a six-year jail sentence. That same year, Imelda turned 88. Two years later, she would celebrate her 90th birthday at a roaring party with 2,500 people at a sports stadium. And yes, hundreds got food poisoning. All this fuels my fevered nightmares. Marcus is a hungry ghost. He torments our dreams, lays claim to our memories, and feeds on our hopes. It's going to be okay, I hear the ghost saying. The second coming will not be a murderous tyrant, just a cotton candy confection spun by PR consultants and TikTok influencers. My son is not Macbeth his only Pinoy big brother. You will be in La La Land, a country without memory, without justice, without accountability. Only the endless loop of one family, the soundtrack 
provided by Imelda. It is time to hush this ghost. A Marcos return is inevitable only if we believe it to be. If we surrender our power and agency, if we accept explanation instead of action. I have nothing against Ferdinand Jr. He is only a year older than me. I don't resent the fact that when he was 22, he was made governor of Ilocos Norte while I was freelancing and trying to get a job in the newspaper. My father did write a letter introducing me to one of his editor friends. The editor didn't seem impressed either by him or by me. I never got a response. I am sleepless because of what the Marcoses represent. World-class plunder, torture, and murder with no acknowledgement, no apology, no repentance, no attempt at restitution, not even taxes paid on inherited stolen wealth. And yet here they are performing civility and restraint, telling us to chill. On this night, 35 years ago, I stood outside the massive iron gates of Malacanang Palace. In the months and weeks before that night, the most erudite observers were telling us there was no way Marcus would go away. But in 1986, we proved them wrong. Filipinos asserted their agency against the weight of power and the forces of history. So today, wherever we are, we must remember this. We took down a dictator. Sure, we botched it afterwards, but that doesn't change the fact that we ousted a tyrant. 1986 was an, an, was an end, even if not the end. It was a time of astonishment and possibility. We had a sense that history was being made and we had a hand in its making. Make history, Marcos wrote in his diary in 1971 and then write it. We made history and we can do so again. And this time we should make sure we write it. We should make sure we write it. Maraming salamat sa inyong lahat. Thank you for sharing this evening or this morning with me.